This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and thanks for joining us this Saturday morning. And we're going to be chatting in the studio with my guest, Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Wolf is the director of the emergency department. He is the chairman of emergency services at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. And it's interesting because... We keep hearing more about the opioid crisis, and it's really the emergency department that's become the front line in opioids, when you think of it, uh, with people showing up in pain. So how are we supposed to deal with that pain at the emergency room level? And uh, we're going to be chatting with him about that a little bit later on. So much going on uh, in the world, uh, but we always like to look back a little bit at this day in medicine. And this day in medicine, July 21st, 1637, Dr. Daniel Sennett was was, uh, passed away. Dr. Sennett was actually a German physician who performed, and this amazed me, he performed the first authenticated C-section in a living woman in 16, so he was, he died in 1637. So I never realized that it, it went back that far. Uh, And it was interesting to look at that date. What it also prompted from me was a thought a little bit about C-section rates. We hear about that a lot now, is the rate uh, by which, under which women undergo C-sections. In 1970, the rate of C-sections was 5%. In 1996, the rate was 20%. So 20% of live births in the United States was were from C-section, and currently it's about 32.2%. Ideally, the number should be about 19% is what I'm told. When I looked at these worldwide, I was shocked from the standpoint that in the Dominican Republic, they have the highest C-section rate, 56.4%. In Brazil, it's about 55%. So more than half of all live births are done through an operative process, cesarean section. Now, as many of you know, the the purpose of a cesarean section is to be performed typically when there's trouble, when the uh, fetus is in jeopardy, the baby's in jeopardy, mom's in jeopardy, you operate and get the baby out. But those things have changed a lot in a couple of reasons. Technology's changed. We do so much monitoring of babies now uh, when they're in the womb, and the the moment something goes wrong, we immediately think to get the C-section. So again, there's technology, which is a good thing, but sometimes it's a false alarm. The other thing is lawsuits. Let's be really honest, okay? There are a lot of lawsuits against obstetricians. Uh, I find it fairly miraculous that anyone wants to practice obstetrics right now. 
uh, when you look at all you have to do is turn on the TV and lawyers have these 800 numbers uh, to call in if anything went wrong with a birth. So the lawsuits, again, err on the side of doing the cesarean section because if you don't, um, you're going to be in court and something goes wrong. And the other thing is control. Women like to have control of the birth, as do doctors, in the sense that who wants to wake up in the middle of the night to deliver the baby? Uh, women could choose what surgeon they want, when they want to have the baby. So, again, there is the control issue. So those numbers are rising. Uh, and uh, actually, I don't know that they're rising in the United States because that's such a monitored number uh, in terms of the number of C-sections a hospital uh, performs. But worldwide, uh, I know those numbers have been going up. Uh, one of the topics that's really been hot to discuss now has been um, these young boys who recently got out of the caves in Thailand. And a lot of people have asked me what the implications are. For example, why did they have to be quarantined for so long? Uh, why did they have to be quarantined at all? And it comes down to the idea of cave illnesses. Now, cave illnesses are things we see in spelunkers, uh, people who their hobby is exploring caves, uh, clearly not people who have any claustrophobia. But there are a lot of diseases in these caves because, again, they're dark, warm areas, and you can see a lot of rabies, leptospirosis, the nipa virus, in addition to a fungus called histoplasmosis. Again, these things grow off of bat and bird droppings that are in these caves. Now, histoplasmosis is a lung infection. It's a fungal lung infection. We'd see it uh, when AIDS was rampant in people who are immunosuppressed. So the thought was, and, and still is, that when starving and in this dark environment, uh, these young boys were in some way immunosuppressed and prone to be subjected to these cave illnesses. And that's why they were kept in isolation to make sure that they would not spread any infection they had and to treat any infection they might have had. The other thought people have asked me about is about post-traumatic stress disorder in these young fellows. And it's interesting because we talk, we've talked about it on the program, and I did a little research into this, and post-traumatic stress disorder um, that people have don't off, doesn't often occur when it's from a natural disaster. So let me explain. So people who have had the trauma of being in an earthquake or uh, being around a volcano or a fire, again, these are natural disasters. We see PTSD more when it's an assault, when it's a wartime. It's human against human struggle. So we see this in wartime uh, with people being shot. We see this in people being assaulted all the time. So again, it's more common in that rather than – so I think – it's interesting, but I think young people are more adaptable. I think these young fellows are going to do very well. And uh, I think that it's going to give them a whole different perspective in life going forward. So uh, from a psychiatric standpoint, I, I don't know that it's going to have such a tremendous negative impact on their lives. Um, 
something I heard about today. We, we've talked a lot about cognitive life expectancy on the show. And, and basically, that's how long older adults live with good versus declining brain health. And we've said that over the age of 65, we now there are studies showing us that on average you have about 12 years of excellent brain health going forward. What's interesting about that is that a lot of it is related to better health habits and more stimulation of the brain as we get older, working until you're older. But in the case of people who have developed dementia, this morning I learned a new term, and that is sports reminiscence therapy. Um, I was watching a program, and they brought someone on to talk about, so they're having a big golf tournament in Scotland at Carnoustie. It's the British Open. And they've developed a program there where the people in that area have such strong memories of the tournaments being played at Carnoustie and golf at Carnoustie. So they put together people who have had memory difficulties and dementia, and they have a program there because these folks identify so much with what went on, and it's interesting that their memories sharpen about prior events at Carnoustie, at this golf tournament and at the golf links, the golf course itself which got me to think about it a little bit more and look into it a little bit further. So these are socialization therapies, and they work very well. A lot of it has to do with music, storytelling, dance, theater, and obviously from sports. So things that people identified with during their active, productive years now bring back these memories, and you could trigger these memories in people with relatively severe dementia so that they can connect again with the present world. Uh, once again, the, these are just amazing stories, amazing therapies, and really open up a door to the brain and make us realize how much there is to learn and how much we can work with the human brain to move forward towards better health. With that, we're going to take a short break. I want to give you the phone numbers here, 860 522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. We're going to be back shortly with my guest today, Dr. Stephen Wolf, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and those are the sounds of Smashing Pumpkins. Am I right, Joe? Right. Smashing Pumpkins, and they will be at the Mohegan Sun um, later this week, uh, actually. Uh, let me get a look at those dates. So Smashing Pumpkins is going to be on the 29th. So many acts coming there. Uh, Jeff Dunham is coming there. Uh, Lindsey Sterling, Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, Camila Cabello, who's a hot new artist. Uh, will be at Mohegan Sun. So remember to get over to Mohegan Sun and uh, enjoy a great uh, adventure there uh, in uh, entertainment and dining. So my guest today is uh, Dr. Stephen Wolf. Dr. Wolf is chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, 
Let's chat a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about emergency medicine? It's a changing field, and I know it's become among the most popular residencies and fields for medical students to choose. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution of, I keep making the mistake of calling it the emergency room. Um, I still, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember when it was a room. Um, But um, can you talk a little bit about emergency medicine and the training people go through to become an emergency uh, medicine physician? Well, originally, emergency medicine was comprised mostly of of physicians from other specialties, either at the beginning of their careers or at the end of their careers, where uh, somebody new would get patients by working in the emergency department. That um, that gradually uh, became a specialty, and I believe the first board was close to 1980 or right before 1980. And so there you had the, the, the specialty actually had specific training for emergency medicine to prepare uh, physicians for that specialty because it's it it covers every specialty in medicine and you have to know a lot about many things not necessarily to to the level of a specialist but you have to be able to recognize a lot of different entities so um it's it's basically a, mostly a four year program residency um and um now there's a there's a full board certification which started in the 80s uh and it's now recognized as a specialty the specialty it took a long time to get to the northeast um it really came from california and the midwest uh and large institutions in the northeast really didn't recognize the specialty for quite some time and they were always a section of either internal medicine or 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 surgery but it was never a standalone uh and only in the past 10 15 years are most programs standalones now why is it so popular um I, most of us have attention deficit disorders so uh <laughs> So we, you know, we we like the going from one patient to another, not knowing what's going to come through the door. A lot of people don't like that uncertainty. Um, it, depending on where you work, it's often like a war zone. Um, and many of us enjoy that. And I say that in quotes. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it is fascinating in terms of what you see and how often you see it. Um, but it's a different type of specialty. You're not in an office. Um, uh, the disadvantages are you, you you can't necessarily follow patients like a private practitioner would, and that sure. sometimes is good, and that may be bad. Um, so it's but it, it it requires a certain type of personality um, to like like that. Um, I think there's some attraction in terms of shift work. Uh, so when you're done, you're done as opposed to a private practitioner who then has to, you know, uh, take care of his office and all of those other things that go along with it. So, um, but on the other hand, you know, it's 24 seven, your, your shifts are day evenings and nights. And, um, that, gets to be fairly grueling as well. I think it's the excitement of the job. And actually, I find it to be interesting because I think it gives young people a lot of variability in terms of shaping their careers. Um, so many go into, I do a, lot, a fair amount of global medicine. Many of the people I meet along the way at uh, Doctors Without Borders and things were emergency medicine trained. So um, I think it's a very exciting field for young people. I think that's why they like it. Um, let's talk a little bit about it what's going on in the emergency 
department because there are a lot of different trends um, as we see and a lot of people come into you in pain. That's the reason. So um, let's talk a little bit about the treatment of pain in the emergency department and maybe how that's evolved. Well, the, the, we obviously, well, we, we take care of different types of pain. There's those people with chronic pain. Uh, they have an exacerbation of that pain. Um, then, of course, there's the ones with acute pain. They fall and they have back pain. Um, they cut themselves. They hurt themselves in many ways. So you've, you've got those di- different types of pain. Um, over time, um, we, we've come to appreciate how, um, how addictive um, opiates are. I, that was not well understood at all um, over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Um, physicians are very poorly trained in that. Um, and it's only been on really recently because of the opioid epidemic that, that the whole medical profession has sort of woken up to that problem. The, the other issue is also, um, physicians and hospitals and healthcare systems were judged on, on, uh, patient surveys and how well pain was treated. So there was a lot of pressure to end expectation on the part of the patient that they would experience absolutely no discomfort during a procedure or in the emergency department or when they were in the hospital or in the doctor's office. So um, that, so so you had two out of the three legs. And the third leg was the drug industry's um, um, promulgation of misleading information um, certain um, studies that that did not show that opiates were addicted were were definitely pushed versus others that that showed addiction, and so the drug companies really were played a part in in hoodwinking the medical profession in terms of uh, not fully disclosing how addictive the the the, the opiates were, similar to the. Uh, to the cigarette issue and the and the tobacco industry. Right. So now we're in this bind because previously, and I'm glad you brought up the point, we were being criticized as a medical profession. If you didn't get somebody out of pain, there were criteria the federal government followed. If you didn't circle the smiley face on your pain level, um, somebody was getting dinged. And usually it was the emergency department uh, for not alleviating pain. And now we're being sanctioned for alleviating too much pain or being blamed for it. Um, how big a problem is it? Um, it it's, a, it's a huge problem. Um, I think that, you know, with, with, with the, again, the perfect storm came together. So you had the government, you had the private industry pushing the drugs, you had a lack of full understanding in the medical profession of the addictive qualities of these, these meds. Um, and then everybody kind of woke up to it and then started and then the feds started ratcheting down the supplies they started going after the the distributors and now you're having a shortage of of pills so the patients that have been hooked up 
hooked on or dependent on steady prescriptions, now we're limited. Well, that really frames the problem. So we're looking at the opiate problem. In the next segment, we're going to be chatting again with Dr. Stephen Wolf about the opiate crisis. What is the opiate crisis and what's being done locally at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center to look at this? The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And those are the sounds of Lindsay Sterling, who will also be at Mohegan Sun. And uh, she will be there on the 25th of this month. We're back with uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Stephen Wolf, And we were just starting to talk a little bit more about the opioid crisis. So, Stephen, you talked about some of the reasons why we have this crisis. Can you expand upon that a little bit more and and to what's really going on? So, um, as I was uh, saying before, um, as the the government and and medicine were kind of waking up to the fact that uh, patients were uh, really dependent on the opiates and that something had to be done to reduce the amount and number of people that were being given prescriptions, uh, the supply started to tighten up. And for those people who were dependent on the medications, it became very problematic. Um, Doctors were becoming very reluctant to continue prescriptions um, that that were high doses over long periods of time. And so those patients kind of got disenfranchised. And so they first started buying pills on the street. And as the pill supply started to dry up because the feds were were, uh, cracking down on the um, pharmaceutical distributors, um, patients started to go to heroin. Uh, heroin became very cheap. It's um, last year it was about two dollars a bag. Um, patients will do ten to twenty bags a day. Um, and then what made it even worse was the fentanyl uh, got into the supply, and fentanyl is, is a synthetic heroin. Uh, it is much of it is made in China. It's FedExed and UPSed in. Um, because it's 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 much more potent uh, than heroin itself. So you've it's about thirty to fifty times more potent than heroin. So you can get uh, quite a bang for your buck with a much smaller amount. And so the DEA, when my t- my talks with the DEA, they they don't have enough inspectors or dogs to to cover all of the ports that the of entry into this country. So you don't have to smuggle it from Mexico. You can just come into an airport and uh, and supply the fentanyl. So that caused a huge num- spike in overdoses. Um, and because you, patients did not know or people did not know what they were getting in the heroin, uh, mixed with the heroin, and so the overdose rate just skyrocketed. And then so over the past couple of years, for instance, at St. Francis, we've had uh, 106 overdoses in 2016. Fiscal year for us is June 30th. Uh, 2017, we jumped to 196. Uh, a few less in 2018 at 192. Obviously, that's still too high. I'm hoping maybe that's we're starting to peak. Um, but f- 
you know, the, the overdoses across the country, 42,000 uh, people overdo- uh, died from heroin overdoses in 2016 in the United States. Uh, total overdoses were, uh, and then um, uh, the deaths in Vietnam for all of Vietnam was 58,000. So you could see what a tragedy this is. Uh, this is an amazing tragedy. And I guess uh, uh, thank you for explaining how the whole fentanyl uh, factor has come into it. Now, we hear a lot about Narcan. Uh, police carry Narcan. Everybody should have Narcan with them in case you witness somebody overdosing. And I found it interesting because there was a recent article in the New London Day where they looked at it, Lawrence and Memorial Hospital, I think in the first six months or whatever, they used 12 doses on the street of Narcan. Six of them were for the same three people. So we get into the issue of, first of all, Narcan. Is it is it worth having, everybody having it available like a defibrillator? Um, and then we get into the issue of we're just going to keep using the same drug and the same thing. What are we doing to fix that? And I know you have some ideas on that. So let, let's talk about the Narcan first. Good move. Should it be readily available? Um, you, you can argue it from both sides and saying, well, we're enabling people to, to you know, use the heroin and here we're rescuing them. And by having Narcan, it gives people a false sense of security. You know, those kind of arguments. The fact is that the whole, the whole purpose of all of our treatment is to reduce harm and to be able to get the patient into treatment. Um, so if that takes an overdose or two and save with Narcan, then that's how it's going to have to be. Um, Narcan's an effective drug. Um, we, we encourage anyone who we see in the ER who doesn't want drug treatment to use it. Uh, you don't need a prescription to get it. Uh, most pharmacists are trained. They have to be trained by the state. It's a brief training, and they can dispense it without a prescription, and they have to instruct the patient on how to use it. And it's been around a long time. I mean, we've had it since the 70s, really. I Correct. Mean, Narcan's it, not it, a new drug. It used to be very cheap. The uh, pharmaceutical companies are gouging the price. It's is now it? quite expensive. Is it? I, yeah. didn't, I didn't realize yes, that. Yes, it's several hundred dollars now, and before it was very well, cheap. Well, it was a very cheap drug. Um, all right, so... And one of the problems here is we're kind of ignoring the folks who legitimately need pain treatment, right? Because we have people out there with cancer. We have people out there with severe, painful bone diseases who need narcotics. And so how do we separate those folks out? It's becoming very difficult. Um, There are not many pain specialists, specifically pain specialists around. So you do have patients that have significant chronic issues with pain. There's a lot of controversy about whether narcotics are good for that pain or make it worse over time because of uh, sensitization and hypersensitivity issues with with narcotics. So, um, but yet there are people with legitimate pain, and the problem comes in when when they come into the emergency department um, instead of their pain specialist. Um, or their private physician, or any type of physician. And when they come into the ER, it's very difficult for us to know what is legitimate and what isn't, and that that causes issues for us. Um, And unfortunately, patients don't have a lot of um, options for outside pain management. There's some clinics that will, that right from the start will say, we do not 
uh, issue any kind of opiate prescriptions. So you're you're kind of limited. So now we we move on, and you want to get somebody into treatment. Can you tell me about tell us about the treatment? What what is the treatment for this? How do you go about approaching that? Because, as you said at the outset, your contact with the patient is minimal. You're in the emergency department. You've got emergencies rolling in. You've got gunshots. You've got stab wounds. And now, you know, you got to kind of sit and hold somebody's hand and direct them to some chronic treatment. How do you do that? Well, St. Francis has always had a very robust behavioral health and substance abuse treatment program. A lot of inpatient uh, services, beds. Uh, we have we have adolescent uh, psych, um, uh, child psych, uh, dual diagnosis, which means substance abuse and psychiatric issues, as well as multiple uh, detoxification opportunities inpatient. And then we also have a referral for uh, ability for outside uh, inpatient treatment. Um, but uh, there's a limited use of uh, the, uh, for detoxification. Detoxification basically is a fairly rapid um, um, way of getting somebody off a drug or alcohol. Um, and and there's also long-term treatment. But what we didn't have was was out a robust outpatient uh, system. So um, in 2015, uh, Yale did a study where they started patients on Suboxone in the emergency department um, and then did a, a facilitated handoff and the uh, to an outpatient treatment center. And they compared that to no Suboxone, um, but, but a facilitated handoff and a facilitated handoff combined with a little brief intervention. What they found was about after 30 days, about 78% of the patients who, who uh, had Suboxone started in the ER were still in treatment. Um, That's a huge percentage. Yes. Now it's only 30 days, um, so, so, but it, it was promising compared with uh, about um, 37 and 45 percent still in treatment for the other two groups. So that started the feds to start pushing money out to have providers certified in Suboxone treatment. Um, there are three different types of treatment. There's the methadone, Suboxone, and naltrexone. Methadone, most people know about. Naltrexone is new, and I, if we have time, I can briefly talk about that. But, but really what's being, what's, what's being promulgated is, is Suboxone. So in the ER, we have a very robust crisis service. They, see, they interview patients who have behavioral health and substance abuse problems. And then we decide with me who, who would be a good candidate and who's willing um, to go on to Suboxone and to continue on in the outpatient arena. We're going to get right back to talking a little bit about this effort at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. My guest is Dr. Stephen Wolf. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to look at the future. What are we going to do in the future for people who have chronic pain and need opiate medications? You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And in our final segment, we're chatting today with Dr. Stephen Wolf from St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. He's the chairman of 
the emergency department and emergency medical services. We were talking a little bit about, just before the break, a little bit about the efforts to use medications, naltrexone, suboxone, methadone. Uh, let's continue with that a little bit and, and talk about, because we're hearing a lot of, today about the word, the name suboxone, the medication suboxone. So let's talk a little bit about it. So as I was saying, the uh, our crisis workers will evaluate those patients and those patients that are willing to go into the program and uh, depending on where they are, when was their last dose, uh, we'll evaluate them and we'll start them on Suboxone. If you start Suboxone too soon after uh, a heroin or a narcotic overdose, you can cause withdrawal. So there's a timing issue. When they start to withdraw is the perfect time and they're different, there's a scale that we use and then we'll start them. We, we offer to keep them overnight uh, we'll offer to keep them over the weekend if they want until we can get a, a an appointment. And what we have done with the help of the state, the state gave us a one-year grant um, to uh, – we have relationships with five outpatient um, uh, drug treatment centers. Um, and so they have promised to give us appointments the next business day. So let's say we have somebody Thursday – We'll hold them up through Friday uh, in the morning. We'll dose them as appropriate, and then they get they get a warm handoff. We'll either have a family or or we'll give them a, a, a taxi ride over there to get them in there, uh, and then the, they will continue the treatment. It's a buildup of about three to four days to get the right dose. Um, and what Suboxone does, well, we and then also what we do is we have what's called the, the CCAR coaches. That's paid for by the state. It's the commu uh, Connecticut Community of Addiction Recovery Coaches. They will see the patient in the emergency department and then follow the patient um, for as long as the patient wants. Afterwards, they'll help them and support them. So that's a great program. So that combined with the, the outpatient treatment gives gives patients a lot of options. Um, suboxone, it takes about three to four days to get the right dosage. And then basically suboxone will maintain somebody and prevent them from withdrawing, but it doesn't give you the rush and the high that narcotics do. So it, ta it gives the brain time to reset. And suboxone is not a, a quick uh, way to detox, although you can use Suboxone to get people off heroin. But you want them to stay on it for a long period of time. Some may have to stay on it for the rest of their lives. It's chronic treatment. It is not a, a wham-bam sort of thing where because you really need to have time for your brain to reset, to not have those cravings, um, and you can't do that in a short period of time. And there's a lot of uh, patients will fall off the wagon you know, we look at drug addiction differently than we do. You know, patients are not compliant with blood pressure medications and not compliant often with uh, with their diabetic medications. So why do we look at that differently? And so we have to look at it the same way. Drug treatment is complicated. It's difficult. Uh, you have a lot of other things going on. But if you can keep somebody on Suboxone, they will they will be safer. They won't be sharing needles. They won't be risking overdose. So... While the argument may be, well, you're just substituting one addiction for another, yeah, to some degree, but it's it's keeping them safer than they would be 
Um, it allows them to have a normal life. You can be on Suboxone and be perfectly normal and have a normal life, go to work every day. And it's an oral medication. It's an oral medication. It's actually, you put it under your tongue and it dissolves. Okay. When we talk about, so on average, how long does it take? I mean, you said some people will be on it lifelong, but how long does it take for someone to go through a Suboxone program and eventually withdraw from Suboxone if they can there's no hard and fast numbers. Months, years, years, the months and years. What's been shown is that if you detox, the likelihood that you will be that you will remain off the drug is pretty low. I mean, really low um, to almost nothing. I mean, some patients can detox and they're done with it. Uh, just like some people can quit smoking from one second to the next and go cold turkey, and they're great. Most people can't. Same thing with, with narcotics. And Suboxone allows you to not withdraw, take care of the cravings because you don't have the cravings that you would when you're on narcotics, and it doesn't give you the high. So it it, it really kind of gets you through the day um, without without all the other things pushing you to to use street drugs. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, as you mentioned, substituting one addiction for another. And, you know, we're not that critical of people who withdraw from alcohol or drugs and smoke more, okay? Uh, and and they typically do, but we're scratching our heads saying, well, okay, we'll take our risk with the smoking. But actually, I think what you're saying is substituting with Suboxone is even safer from that standpoint. Um how about you mentioned naltrexone? Can you talk a little bit about that no. drug? Uh, I have no experience with personally with naltrexone, but naltrexone basically is a drug uh, where you have to detox uh, for about a week. You have to get all of the narcotics out of your system, and then uh, and then you can be put on naltrexone. It's also used for alcohol, um, so it's a difficult drug to use. Um, but if you take uh, a narcotic while you're on it, you're going to get very ill and sick. So that's where the that's where the issue is. So for many people, it's a difficult drug to deal with because they don't want to go through withdrawal. And that's the positive for Suboxone is that you don't have to go through withdrawal. And similar to uh, to uh, methadone, the studies have shown with either Suboxone or methadone. If you're on those drugs, the likelihood that you will still be in treatment in a year is much higher, 50 75%, than if you just detox. And our numbers are similar. We've had about 24 patients now, and we have about a 72% success rate. They're not all on Suboxone, but they're all in treatment. Some have fallen off, and they've gotten back. Having the CCAR coaches also... As a as a as a program, everybody is eligible for that. Um, they that's been great, and they help the patient. And they you know if the patient falls off, they also help getting the patient back into treatment. We've had a few repeaters, and you know it's just one of those things. Drug treatment is difficult, and you just have to bite the bullet. And if the patient shows up again, then they've fallen off the wagon. Then we'll do everything we can to get them back on. Stephen, in the last 45 seconds, what's the future? How are we going to conquer this problem? Um, I think we, we have a chance. I think uh, medicine is, is much better at understanding the risks of, of narcotic addiction. Um, 
I don't think that was well appreciated, how easy it was for even with one prescription, somebody could get hooked. So I think the, uh, the new uh, addiction cases will be much less than they are now. Uh, what we really have to now work on are those people who are addicted. And half of them got addicted through prescriptions and half of them did not. And so I think there's there's hope, but it, and the Suboxone, I think, is one good um, uh, way to do this. Well, I think your point's well taken. And I think it really takes a community to really solve this problem. It's not just doctors. It's not just hospitals. But um, I do want to thank you and the folks at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center for taking a lead on this and, uh, you know, really uh, showing how physicians really need to lead this change. Um, so I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Many thanks to our studio producer. Joe Costa has been on the board today, sitting in for Mike Olko. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to have a taped program um, since I'll be away. We're going to be back on August 4th. We're going to be talking about diseases of the retina and changes in the retina and treatments, new retinal treatments for people who have blindness. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Until next week. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy.